And so we find ourselves in, in Luke chapter 5. As you're turning there, uh, I do uh, want to make you aware that uh, this is uh, Harrison Otis's last Sunday. Where's Harrison? Uh, you're over here somewhere. There you are, right in front of me. Um, and I know many of us have been blessed by Harrison uh, in his uh, time of uh, meditation and playing the piano. And uh, you may not know this, but Harrison has been working and discipling our youth for at least a couple years now and has been a great asset to our church. And he's going off to Burundi that he might continue to minister uh, for our Lord and on behalf of Christ. And Harrison, we love you and uh, God speed to you, brother, and we'll keep you in our prayers. Luke chapter 5 and verse 17. Hear now the word of God. On one of those days as he was teaching, Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there who had come from every village of Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem. And the power of the Lord was with him to heal. Behold, some men were bringing on a bed a man who was paralyzed, and they were seeking to bring him in and lay him before Jesus. But finding no way to bring him in because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and let him down with his bed through the tiles into the midst before Jesus. And when he saw their faith, he said, Man, your sins are forgiven you. And the scribes and Pharisees began to question, saying, Who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? When Jesus perceived their thoughts, He answered them, Why do you question in your hearts? Which is easier to say, Your sins are forgiven you? Or to say, Rise and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, He said to this man who was paralyzed, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And immediately he rose before them and picked up what he had been lying on and went home glorifying God. And amazement seized them all, and they glorified God and were filled with awe, saying, we have seen extraordinary things today. Our Father, we would like as well to see extraordinary things as we consider your word And so as we have already prayed today, we pray once again, please give us eyes to see it. Give us eyes to see Jesus. Draw us by your Spirit. Build us up in faith. Help us, Father, to know our Lord and to follow Him faithfully because of this Word, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, as most of you know, one of my favorite things to do when I have the opportunity is to um, strap on a backpack and, and go walk around in the mountains for a week or so. And, and one of my favorite places to go, if I have the opportunity, you can't find these places much east of the Mississippi, is to get above the timber line. Get up in what's called the Alpine region. And once you get to about 10,000 feet elevation, vegetation no longer is able to grow there because the air is so thin. And so when you're up above that elevation, it's just kind of you and, and an occasional animal and just the massive rocky peaks in which God has made. And there's great joy and and ministry that's done in my heart when I'm at 12,000 or 13 or even 14,000 feet. And you can see for as long as the eye can take you and you feel very small and God feels very large to you. And there's a wonderful and incredible time. But one of the things about being above the timberline is you're rather exposed to the elements. 
In fact, you're now the tallest thing on the mountain. And so many of these alpine peaks have rudimentary shelters covered with lightning rods. In case a storm is going to come in, you, you run for shelter and you take uh, shelter on one of these uh, often just uh, poles with a roof and lightning rods on the top. It just so happened when Allegra and I were first married, uh, we were on our honeymoon when we were able, because of the generosity of my parents, to be in the Swiss Alps. And so we were up on the top of the, the Alps and we were above the timber line and it, that's exactly what happened. It, uh, the wind picked up and uh, we saw the storm coming in and so we made our way for one of these shelters and there we kind of hid under this shelter as the storm raged around us. And what was fascinating is you could actually hear the metal rods sizzle. There was so much electricity in the air. In fact, the sailors of old would call this St. Elmo's fire. And they would talk about the mast on the ship and the metal portions. They would glow with a kind of a ghostly neon blue color in the midst of these storms. And simply what it means is that lightning is imminent, that electricity is in the air. I mention this just to use it as a spiritual metaphor to perhaps have a doorway into this text because it seems to me something equivalent spiritually is taking place here. In fact, if you note verse 17, it says, On one of those days as he was teaching, Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there who had come from every village of Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem. And the power of the Lord was with him to heal. It seems to me, as I look at this text, that there was electricity in the air at that home in Capernaum, as many jammed into this little house as the power of the Lord there was present, as Luke tells us. In fact, a great crowd is now following Jesus, largely in response to what we considered last week. Remember when Jesus healed that leper. Now, a leper had not been healed uh, since the time of Elisha and just never took place. And of course, Jesus instructed the man to tell no one, and he did the exact opposite. He told everyone. And because he told everyone, many people begin to gather and to follow Jesus at this point. Mark, in the parallel account, will say, so many gathered there that there was no room left, not even outside the door. So the room is full. The curious are there. People are hanging on Jesus' every word as he teaches. And even on the outside, I trust there will be jostling as the noisy crowd tried to peek through the door or get a listen. But in addition to the curious, you know there are some new fellows here that we have yet to discover in Luke's Gospel. There in verse 17, they're called the Pharisees, teachers of the law. Later in this passage, they'll be called the scribes. This is the first time we see them, and we'll actually see them in a number of uh, subsequent texts, all the way through chapter 6, verse 11. These are the religious elite. The Pharisees, which would number 6,000 in Jesus' day, were non-priests, but they were kind of a religious order that would try to get people of Israel to be faithful to God's law. In order to be faithful to God's law, they would issue edicts and rulings uh, in order to to have uh, applications of the law of God. They would bring forth uh, Pharisees tradition. It's probably not unlike uh, how the Muslims have their fatwas that are issued by their religious leaders and, and issuing these edicts. And this is what the Pharisees would do. The teachers of the law, or the scribes here, were the professional theologians. They were, if you will, the seminary professors of that day. You also know where they came from. In verse 17, it says these individuals had come from every village of Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem. And so they all have now come and descended upon Jesus from all over uh, the country of Israel. If you remember in this part of Luke's gospel, he's in Galilee. He'll be there till Luke chapter 9 and verse 52. This is kind of the Galilee springtime.
time. He's withdrawn to the rural north, away from the urban south where all the religious leaders are, to have some freedom to begin his ministry. Well, they have now followed him all the way, many days' journey from Jerusalem, to check him out, to consider and to investigate who this new rabbi is, this new preacher is. In fact, you may note their posture there in verse 17, as it says the Pharisees and the teachers of the law were sitting there. Now, you might just over uh, read over that, but remember that this is standing room only. And this room is packed. And the position of authority, the honor position would be to take a seat. In fact, in this day, the preacher would actually sit down. And so these men there are sitting there as they are have come to, to judge Jesus' teaching. The greatest theological minds of the day have descended upon this little house to hear this preacher boy and what he has to say. Now you and I might find that intimidating as people come to evaluate you, but it doesn't seem like Jesus is bothered by it at all, as Luke simply tells us in verse 17, as he was teaching, and the crowds were listening, and the Pharisees were searching for error. You add on top of that, in verse 17 says, the power of the Lord was there. I therefore conclude there was electricity in the room. This room is charged as we see this incredible and beautiful story about who Jesus is. In fact, this is a great story, isn't it? I mean, if I can't preach this well, if you don't go away feeling compelled towards Christ, I need a new job. Because you have everything in this story. You have a theological debate. You have the power of God. You have incredible faith. You have forgiveness of sin. You have miraculous healing. You have a little bit of showing off. You have conflict, reading hearts, awe, praise, a little bit of vandalism, a riddle right there in the middle, friendship, joy, delight. I mean, this we could spend weeks in this story, but the greatest thing about this story is it gives us our most clear understanding of who Jesus is and what he has come to do at this point in Luke's gospel. We see Christ has come to bring a salvation far greater and far deeper and far more magnificent than anyone ever dared to dream. And so let's consider our Lord this morning as we see, first of all, Jesus responds to faith. We pick up the story in verse 18. And behold, Some men were bringing on a bed a man who was paralyzed. And they were seeking to bring him in and lay him before Jesus. Evidently, some men hear that Jesus is in town. And so they go and grab their paralyzed friend to bring him to Jesus. And perhaps that's a bit of a struggle and difficulty as they have to carry him. And their goal, as you see there in verse 18, is to lay him before Jesus. There is a problem, however. They have arrived too late. And there are hundreds, if not thousands of people in this small house and surrounding it um, all around. And I trust, I don't think it's uh, difficult to imagine, they tried to work their way through the crowd and tried to get this man closer to Jesus. And maybe one man would be able to do that, or maybe two, but four, or who knows how many, maybe ten men carrying another man on the bed, the crowd would have none of it. And they would not let them through. They were rebuffed, and perhaps they then went and sat down and regrouped or, or sat down and defeat, looking at their friend and his great desperate need, and then looking at the impossible crowd before them, and suddenly inspiration hits. They get an idea, don't they? If we can't get through the door, how about through the roof? As you know, verse 19. But finding no way to bring him in because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and let him down with his bed through the tiles into the midst before Jesus. 
Now, the roof, uh, these will be small houses. These will be houses around 500, 600 square feet, much smaller than yours and mine. And, but they would have a roof that would be flat, and they would always have an external staircase up to the roof, and they would often use the roof as an additional room. They would sleep up there on, on hot summer nights. The roof would be constructed with these cross beams about two to three feet apart. Laying upon the cross beams uh, perpendicularly would be sticks or limestone tiles. On top of those tiles, they would pack about a foot of mud and clay. Many roofs would have grass growing on top of them. And so they walked up to this this roof there and they hauled him up the stairs, which I trust was no easy feat. And there, perhaps resting to catch their breath for a moment, they begin to dig. They start tearing this roof apart. Meanwhile, I trust Jesus continues to teach below. And the commotion is taking place. You could hear the shoveling going from above and the digging and the tearing. And eventually, dirt begins to fall and debris begins to rain down upon people, showering them with sticks and clay. And then finally, you you can imagine just a, a pinhole of light appears. And that hole grows larger. And perhaps someone sticks their head through to see if they're anywhere near Jesus. They say, oh, there he is. We're right above him. And so the hole goes bigger and bigger and bigger until it's large enough to fit an entire man laying down. And these friends, perhaps with a warning from above, look out below, they might have shouted. Down comes a paralyzed man lowered right before Jesus on ropes. Now, can you imagine what that must have been like? I mean, just put yourself in that position for a moment. Uh, above, you have these four sweaty, determined faces. Down below, you have the Pharisees and the scribes shaking dirt off their robes. Or you can imagine what the homeowner must have thought. Um, we know Jesus is in Capernaum at this time. And most scholars believe that Jesus adopted Capernaum as his home and lived in Simon Peter's house. So I think it's probably safe to assume that this is Peter's house. Now you can imagine what Peter, knowing what we know about Peter, must have thought about these men digging a hole through his roof in Jesus' name. Right? He must have been irate. He must have been, I trust, uh, very emotional about this experience. All the while, I think Jesus is smiling from ear to ear. I think he loves it. I think he loves it for two reasons. One, these men are clearly demonstrating their deep love for this man, and two, they are clearly demonstrating their persevering faith in Christ. I mean, why else go to this trouble? You only dig a hole through someone's roof for someone you truly love, right? You're not going to vandalize someone's house for an acquaintance. This is someone that you are uh, in love with. This is someone that has captured your heart, that this is a very close friend, and you ignore the protest, ignore the judgment, ignore all the ramifications because you love this man. But it's not just their love that is demonstrated. It is their faith that is clearly seen, as we see in verse 20. And when he saw their faith, he saw their faith. That's interesting, isn't it? Because we think of faith as an, uh, an attitude of the heart. And yet Jesus says he, he saw it. Well, what he saw was their actions. And their actions speak a great deal about their opinion of Jesus. They believe Jesus could help, clearly. In fact, they're willing to overcome obstacles shows how much they believed. It is real faith, right? You can't get through. We'll just go up over. We'll climb the roof. We'll dig a hole. We'll lower them down. That will get his attention, right? Because they believed. You know, wavering faith sees the crowd and says, well, you know, we tried, but obviously we, we can't get through. A, a, a wavering faith starts to dig and then feels embarrassed, and doesn't, are you sure this is a good idea? You think we should do, actually do this? 
It is only the persevering faith that, that believes that Christ is the only way that will not be denied. It is their faith that Christ sees. It is their faith in which Christ will respond to. It is their faith in which Christ rejoices in. And I think this is helpful. I think we see application already from this story that, friends, faith is not simply a mere attitude. It is seen in action. There are countless people who live in this land and say, I have faith in Jesus. And what they mean by that is that they have an intellectual agreement with a set of facts about Jesus. But that's not biblical faith. Biblical faith is, is a desire to get near Jesus. It is believing who he is and letting that belief draw you towards him. And, and it is this faith that catches Jesus' eye. It is this faith that touches God's heart. In fact, it is evidently this kind of faith that overcomes obstacles, overcomes hurdles. Right? This is a faith that doesn't stop at the first barrier. You know, often we, 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 we're unsure what to do and we, we kind of sit back and wait for God to open a door, right? We use that as kind of our, our religious lingo these days. You know, well, I'm just praying that God would, would open a door. And I, I totally understand that. I've done that and I will continue to do that. But I think God sometimes wants us to show our faith by fighting through. Right? Sometimes the door is open. Sometimes the door is closed. And sometimes the door needs to be ripped off the hinges. Right? So, so please, I think it would be a, a naive to assume every closed door, therefore, means it is not God's will. Well, maybe precisely God's will. And he wants to know how much you believe it is, how much you trust him. Now, I think we learn a great deal about faith here. Well, moreover, I think we learn a great deal about bringing our friends to Jesus. I, I wonder if we have such persevering faith when we try to bring our friends to Christ. I wonder if we are so creative in bringing people to Jesus. When we can't get through one way, we'll, we'll try another. I wonder if we are willing to enlist the help of friends. Often I think it takes many to bring one to faith in Christ. Please understand that whenever you try to bring someone to Jesus, there will always be obstacles. There will always be barriers. When you try to bring someone to Jesus, it's never just a wide open door and they walk right in and receive Christ as their Savior. There are always challenges in which we must overcome. And I wonder if we're willing to do so. I wonder if we could just even start conversations with those who need to come to Christ. Can I pray with you? You know, my, my family likes to pray for our neighbors or for our workplace. Is there anything we can be in prayer for you? Or maybe you could buy them a book or a Bible and maybe mark some verses and say, I know you know how much this book means to me and I, I would really love for you to have a copy. I bought this for you and give it to him. Or if you can invite them to our services and say, listen, I'd like to come and pick you up. I'll, I'll bring coffee and a muffin and, and we could sit together. I wonder if we would persevere in bringing people to Jesus. I wonder who we know about who needs our Lord. And we see this great work. I think a great challenge here. Well, we move on in the story, and we see that not only that Jesus responds to faith, we see, secondly, that Jesus gives forgiveness. And so there's a man lying right in front of him. I wonder what he's thinking. Perhaps he's embarrassed. The crowd's astonished. The Pharisee's indignant. Simon Peter beside himself. And at the end of verse 19, you see the final position of that sentence. It says he was before Jesus. And the question is, what will Jesus do? What is he thinking? And he does the most unexpected and even the, the most offensive thing. You see it in verse 20. And when he saw their faith, he said, Man, your sins are forgiven you. And Jesus forgives his sins. Now this is the first mention that Jesus has, uh, first time that Jesus has mentioned forgiveness. He hasn't spoken of it at all. As we now learning that Jesus' ministry is far more significant than casting out demons and healing the lame. It's more than teaching. It's, it's, it's more than work, works of power. He's come to bring forgiveness of sins. Now, I trust that this time his friends must have been confused, don't you think? Like, what did he say? Well, he said his sins are forgiven. 
What? I mean, really? I mean, you can imagine them saying, well, thank you very much. We, uh, we appreciate that. We will take that. Uh, but you do notice he can't walk. Right? Anyone with eyes in their head can see that his greatest need is his physical healing. And Jesus says, no, it is not. That is not his greatest need. His greatest need is that he has to be right before God. His greatest need that he has to be made fit before his creator. I tell you, no matter what else is pressing in on you in life, your greatest need, my greatest need, everyone's most fundamental need is that our sins would be forgiven. Now, I understand that many people will take exception to that. Perhaps there are some people here that would take exception to that. Certainly when you go out and speak about what Christ does and what He offers to your neighbors and co-workers and your family, they will take exception to that. They will object to this idea that my greatest need is forgiveness of sins. Many of them will say, I don't feel like I need forgiveness. I don't know what you're talking about. I feel like I'm a pretty good person. I think, in fact, in our country, forgiveness is increasingly a hard sell. Right? I don't think people, at least on the face of it, understand their great need. In fact, we live in, in a country, in fact, in a part of the world, the West, we'll just call it the West, which is unlike any other culture that has ever existed anywhere in this world, largely within the last 50 years, in which we no longer as a culture have, a, have an ability to determine whether something is right or wrong. Right? If someone commits adultery, for instance, has an affair... We no longer as a society have an ability to say, that's wrong. We're not sure anymore. Why, I need to know the details. Tell me about it. And we are, we have gone so far and we have lost in a, in fact, I remember 9-11 and President Bush immediately began to call the attacks upon America as evil acts. Do you remember that? And there was this great national dialogue. Are, are we allowed to call something evil? I and mean, we were confused. Even if something as heinous as that, we weren't sure if we could actually label something as wrong. And if we have not done anything wrong, then why do we need to be forgiven? And so that's the trouble in which we find ourselves. But I wonder if people really, if they, they silence their heart, or silence everything around them and listen to their heart, they will come to a different conclusion. You see, our society says you don't need to feel guilty about anything. Uh, but I still feel like people believe they're sinners. I think if you talk to them, they will begin to recognize that. Our society says don't believe in sin and hell. And yet people walk around with a sense of condemnation. Uh, There's a voice in us that if we slow down in life, I think it calls us a coward, an imposter, a fake. I think the reason is because we need to be forgiven. I like what Francis Spufford said about forgiveness. He says, what does it feel like to to feel yourself forgiven? Speaking for myself, surprising. He uh, draws a metaphor, which I very much appreciate. He says, it is like a toothache stopping because the tooth has been removed. It has the numb surprisingness of something that hurt not being there anymore. In other words, what he's saying is that, you know, when you're in pain, you become so used to the pain. That, that it's just in the background, right? If some of you are in chronic pain, maybe you go to a doctor and he, he realigns your back and, and all of a sudden you, you, you go, oh, now I know what I'm supposed to feel like, right? I didn't realize how bad I was feeling. And, and that backache or that chronic, chronic pain affects every part of your life. And, and once that pain is removed, then you realize, oh, okay, now I know what living is really like. Well, I think that's what it's like to be forgiven, Right? This is this background ache in us. 
If you've never experienced God's forgiveness, you are more unhappy than you realize. And it's only when you receive the forgiveness that you will begin to say, wow, this is what life is really like. That's what Christ offers us. He offers us His forgiveness. Well, I know other people would object by saying, well, listen, my, my, my forgiveness is not my greatest need. My suffering is my greatest need. I mean, my suffering is destroying me. I'm in great pain. I'm in great difficulty. And it's, it's not only affecting me physically, it's affecting me emotionally and spiritually. It is my most urgent need. And so I'm willing to work on my relationship with God, but my greatest need is to be well. And Jesus is saying, no, it's not. And the reason is, is because whatever healing we get, we will once again become sick. Something else bad will happen. The cancer will return. Paul says our outward bodies are wasting away, but our inward spirit is being renewed day by day. I appreciate how Tim Keller illustrates this. He, he says if, if you're a four-year-old with a great father, you will, your father will appear to you as loving, wise, strong, and irritating. He says, because your father's constantly telling you to stop that, put that down, go to bed, you know, let go of your sister's hair, right? Whatever it is, he's constantly correcting you. And so four-year-olds don't have perfect relationships with their fathers. They're often screaming and complaint and, 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 and stomping a feet. And, and they don't have that relationship. But if you are a great father, at the end of the day, your four-year-old still wants you to carry them to bed. Still wants you to place a hand upon their head and pray a blessing over them. At the end of the day, the four-year-old still wants to crawl in daddy's arms. Even though the relationship is not perfect. See, Jesus offers us that kind of relationship with God. Without God, we're like a four-year-old without a father. We're unable to cope with life. Unable to face the pain. And that we need this relationship. And the relationship that he offers that will, will last forever. See, if cancer brings you to God, I think you'll actually praise God for cancer. I, I imagine one day you'll find this guy. You go search him out when you walk into eternity. The paralyzed man from Luke chapter 5. And you say, excuse me, sir, can you tell me what you think about your paralysis? I undoubtedly believe he will praise God that he was paralyzed. Because it brought him to Christ. It brought him to his much greater need, that he received forgiveness, that he would not know God without it. The greatest need is forgiveness. Well, there's a third objection. Many people will say, well, listen, I, I don't need to be forgiven. I'm the one who's been wronged. I don't need forgiveness. I need help. And many people who have been hurt and wronged, they live lives of sadness and anger and bitterness You've heard perhaps that bitterness is the poison you drink hoping the other person will drop dead. And people live like that. If you can't forgive someone, they win, don't they? Not only have they wronged you, now they get to take your joy. They get to take your peace. They get to take your sleep. They get to occupy your mind over and over again. And they are not going to drop dead. You will. And you know what the wrong person needs above else? What the victim needs more than anything? He needs the ability to forgive the person who has wronged him. And so where do you find that ability? 
I mean, if you're unable to, to, you'll be unable to forgive others. You'll be unable to forgive people who have hurt you unless you receive forgiveness yourself that is far greater, unless you know yourself to be a forgiven sinner. You're not going to have the emotional security to forgive others unless you first receive the forgiveness of God upon you. And it's only when God brings you forgiveness and you realize how much you have been forgiven of that you'll have the emotional wealth to extend it to other people. You see, Jesus is right. Forgiveness is our greatest need. He offers it to this man. He even offers it to you today. Well, thirdly, you notice that Jesus makes a a profound claim in this story. He claims to be God. We see this brought up because of his statement of forgiveness. Right? All this talk about forgiveness of sin raises another question. And the question is, who in the world does this man think he is? I mean, who, who, how can he go about forgiving? You remember he made this statement in the presence of the theologians of the day, and they are not pleased with it, as you see in verse 21. And the scribes and the Pharisees begin to question, saying, Who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? And so they, they, perhaps a perverse satisfaction crosses their face as they think, we got him. We've nailed him. He's a blasphemer. And they accuse him of blasphemy. You do understand that it is a blasphemy to claim to be God, unless it's true. And so they are accusing Christ of that blasphemy. They're accusing him of that great sin that he is claiming to be God. They say, who can forgive sins but God alone? And they are absolutely right, of course. Only God can forgive sins because all sin is ultimately against God. Sin is a rebellion against God. Sin is a rejection of God. Sin is an attempt to orphan yourself from the one who has made you. All sin is against God. And only the offended party can give the forgiveness. For instance, if someone broke into your house and you called the police and the, the police came by and they arrested the burglar and you had a change in heart and you walked out to the police and you said excuse me officer i want you to know i forgive this man uh, please do not plus charges well the police would say okay they would let him go well now suppose that your house is broken into and the police caught the burglar and i walked over and i said excuse me officer i'd like you to know i forgive this man please don't plus charges well you would look into me like i've lost my mind you say, what in the world are you doing? It's not your house that was broken into. It was my house. You can't forgive him. Only I can forgive him. You see, it's only the offended party that can offer the forgiveness. And yet Christ, there sitting before a man he's never met in his life, says to him, I forgive you your sins. And the theologians are enough for You can't do that. Only God can forgive which is exactly what Jesus is claiming to be. He is God. He is the one who has brought forgiveness. I can forgive because I am God himself. Isaiah would say, I, even I, am he who blots out your transgressions for my name's sake, and I will remember your sins no more. That's God's work. And Jesus, Jesus shows up, and, and I think in a very clear way, the, the clearest way possible, he's claiming that this man has sinned against him, and he is claiming, therefore, to be God by forgiving him. We'll see that very clearly as we work our way through the end of this text. But I just want to note that some people come to you and say, well, Jesus never claimed to be God, and it's just utter nonsense. Jesus claimed to be God in a thousand different ways, in all in the nuance and wonderful and different ways, and you could just take him here, by the way, if you want to show where Jesus is claiming to be God, he's claiming to have the power to forgive sins. And by the way, they didn't kill Jesus because he healed people. 
They didn't nail him to a cross because he was a good teacher. They killed him because they thought he was a blasphemer, and he always was claiming to be God, and he is claiming to be God. He says, I will prove it to you. I will prove to you that I have come to forgive sins as he turns and addresses uh, these Pharisees in verse 22. When Jesus perceived their thoughts, he answered them, Why do you question in your hearts? Which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven you, or to say, rise and walk? I wonder how you would answer that question there in verse 23. What's easier? I think on the face of it, we would, we would say, well, it's easier to say your sins are forgiven because you can't verify it. Right? Anybody could say that. But, it, but it's much harder to say rise and walk because there's going to be an ability to actually see if that's taken place. And so what Jesus is saying is, I've forgiven him, and in doing so, I'm claiming to be God, and I will prove it to you all now, as we see in verse 24 but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. Now, if this was a movie, this would be the dramatic pause, wouldn't it? Like Everything would slow down at this point. Because really, eternity hangs on the balance as to what happens with this man. Jesus is either an imposter or a fake, or he is who he says he is. He is God in the flesh who has the authority to forgive sins. And so what is going to happen? What will take place? As Jesus says, ask this man to do the impossible, something he has not able physically to do, to get up, walk, and go home. We read in verse 25, and immediately he rose up before them and picked up what he had been lying on and went home glorifying God. Amen? Amen? He got up, immediately healed, and left. Now just pause here for a moment, and I just want to draw your attention to how different Jesus is from every other religious leader. I mean, no, no other religious leader ever, Muhammad, Krishna, Buddha, whoever it is, no other religious founder would come and say to people, I forgive your sins. You won't find it in any sacred text, except for Jesus. In fact, if you would go up to these guys and, and they would tell you, okay, here's the process. Here's the rituals. Here's the sufferings. Here's the payments. Here's the reincarnations. And you have to go through this process and one day you may earn forgiveness or earn God's blessing or earn eternal life. And all religions have, they have different rules, but they all say you have to obey the rules in order to get God to love you, God to forgive you, to receive the blessing. And Jesus just shows up and says, I forgive you. Just done. With, just with a stroke. It's done. You're forgiven. There's no hoops to jump through. There's no work. There's no penance. There's no, no uh, uh, um, acts that they need to do. There's no one earning it. They don't clean themselves up before they come to Jesus. You know, they don't try to impress Jesus. He doesn't say, here's the commandments you have to obey. He just looks at this man and says, okay, you are forgiven. You see, all you have to do is come to Jesus. All you need to be is broken over your sin. All you need to do is come to Him with confession in your heart and a desire to receive the mercy and grace in which you will so freely give to you. All you need is need. And this man comes to Jesus with great need. In fact, what's amazing to me is he doesn't even express his need. Of course, we know he has a need to be healed. That's very clear. But there is somewhat of a challenge in this text because he doesn't, I don't think he, he, he express, well, clearly doesn't express his need to be forgiven. Which is interesting because we don't find anywhere else in the Bible except this story. And maybe I'm wrong. You could help me. But, but I believe this to be true where forgiveness is extended to someone without repentance, right? Without someone broken over their sin, without someone um, sorry for what they have done, right? God never looks at someone just going along in life and says, oh, I forgive you. I forgive that guy over there. 
Right? There always has to be this, this brokenness. And, and he, he looks at this man, and, and this man doesn't say anything to him. I mean, he hasn't said a word. And Jesus looks at him and says, your sins are forgiven. So what, what's going on there? Now, what, I, I think I know the answer that you're going to give. And you're going to say, well, uh, pastor, if you read the text carefully, you would see in verse 20, when he saw their faith. And, and the faith is, I think, clearly just not his friends, but it's the man as well. And so Jesus has seen their faith and therefore forgave them. And clearly they have faith. But my question is faith in what? I, I think they had faith in Jesus to heal, but I'm not sure they had faith that Jesus is the Son of God who came into this world to provide salvation through grace and forgiveness of sins. I, I don't think they believe that. I don't think there's anything here to tell us that. And so why then did Jesus forgive him? And I'm, I'm just going to, for a moment, for, speculate for a moment. So we're just going to leave the text, and these are some of uh, some ideas that, that they're not mine. Um, at least I'm not the first to draw them. But you notice that he knew what the scribes were thinking in verse 22. Jesus perceived their thoughts. He answered them, why do you question your hearts? Right? He's able to, to read what's going on. I trust he likewise knew what was going on in this man's heart. And, and I'm left to conclude that, that no, although this man wanted healing, he knew he wanted mercy. He desired mercy. And therefore, Jesus responds to this man's desire even when it's unexpressed. All right, speculation ended. Let's go back to the text. Because I think what you need to see is that regardless, Jesus is eager to give his love. You notice that Jesus is eager to extend grace. He's not waiting for this man to, to say the right thing and to express it the right way, right? And he just gives it to him. I mean, my kids, uh, we teach them to speak to us in a certain way. I trust as you do. In fact, even during our time of praise, uh, we had our, our two-year-old daughter in here, and she wanted to open the Bible and, uh, and read along, right? She's very advanced. Um, and, uh, and, and so uh, uh, she says, I want to read. And you may have heard the conversation taking place. And mommy said, say please, right? So we teach our kids to say please. We teach them to say, yes, mommy, and yes, daddy, and thank you. And that's appropriate for the home or the church pew. But it's not appropriate, evidently, for Jesus. He didn't say to this man, well, say please. He didn't say to him, say yes, sir. He didn't say to him, say thank you. Because Jesus is eager to give grace. His grace is impatient. His grace is aggressive, and he just senses something that's going on in this man's heart, and his grace jumps all over him. Son, I forgive you of all your sin. That's who he is. He can't wait to forgive. He's like the, the prodigal's father who sees him wandering off in brokenness and runs to him and pounces on him and kisses him and won't even let him finish his speech of repentance, giving him grace and mercy. He is so eager to love and to give mercy, even when the desire is unexpressed, even when it's not expressed the way you and I might want it be to be expressed. He just runs to him with forgiveness. And when I think about these things, about who God is, I, it blows my mind why people refuse to come to Him. I mean, why would you ever not want to give your life to this man? How, how much more compassion do you need? How much more power do you require? How, how much more goodness do you demand that He demonstrate? I mean, what more could He possibly do? 
He is full of grace. And He will shower it upon you at the slightest request. This very moment. Christ is God who's come to give grace. Well, lastly, consider that Jesus brings amazement. There are three groups here. You see the man, verse 25. And immediately he rose up before them and picked up what he had been lying on and went home glorifying God. I mean, what a moment. This man who arrived through a roof, enters, exits through a door, carrying the bed that once carried him. And I trust he is leaping and hollering all the way home. The prophet Isaiah, as Pastor Josh read for us this morning, said the lame shall leap like a deer. He is leaping. He is delightful of what God has done. Not only leaving, carrying his bed, but leaving with forgiveness too as his friends upon the roof are in trust, are high-fiving and hugging and yahooing as to what has taken place. And so you have that guy. And then you notice the crowds. Group number two, verse 26. And I love this. And amazement sees them all. wonderful picture. Amazement grabbed them. Amazement laid hold of them. It it sees them, Luke says, and they glorify God and they were filled with awe saying, we have seen extraordinary things today. And they were overwhelmed by what they have seen. They they saw this immediate healing once again, this, this mighty work of God. And this man is restored. This man is forgiven. And Jesus is God. I mean, it is a good day. I, I wonder, my brothers and sisters, when, when's the last time you've been seized with amazement at your God? When's the last time you've been filled with awe as they were? And my fear is that when I come to these passages, and and maybe when you do as well, we just kind of yawn at it. And we just, well, is there anything else in here? I mean, you understand what's taking place here. Don't you want to be filled with awe with our God? Oh, I think he wants to do so. Well, you have a third group. You have the Pharisees. If the man is leaping and the crowds are glorifying, the Pharisees are frowning. We know this not from this text, but from the next passage that we'll consider, God willing, next week. Uh, they are still accusing Jesus of wrong, still annoyed with Jesus. And you just think about what must be going on in their heart. Here's a man that was healed, and there, there's no joy there. I mean, there's no happiness that this man's life is now restored, no concern for him at all. And they didn't praise Jesus, which is interesting, isn't it? Because it's the same miracle and they all saw it. And some people walked away with great joy and amazement and, and awe and glory. And other people were, were angry from the exact same thing. The same miracle, different responses. And I think it all comes down to what you think about Jesus. I mean, I think the Pharisees ask a very interesting question there. And what is it? Verse 21. Who is this one? Right? Who is this man? I think this is a question we all must ask. Is he a blasphemer? Or, or is he God in the flesh who has compassion, who heals diseases, who knows our hearts, and who forgives sins? But let, away from the nonsense of thinking Jesus is just a good teacher, just a, a wise sage. He doesn't leave that option open to us. He's saying, I forgive sins. And so he can only do that if he's God. And if he's not God, then he's a lunatic. And so let's, let's not say he's a good teacher. Either a blasphemer 
or He's who He says He is. He is the one who forgives sins. I believe that's who He is. He demonstrated it when He rose from the dead. I believe He forgave this man's sins as He has forgiven my sin and forgiven your sin if you are in Christ. The question that remains for us as we end is how? I mean, how does He do it? And so go back to that verse, and that, that question of verse 23. He says, which is easier to say your sins are forgiven you or just say rise and walk? I actually think that's a puzzle. I think there's a riddle there. And we've already said, well, it's easier to, it's harder to say rise and walk, right? Because you have to verify that. But in reality, it's, we know now, and we will know when we get to the end of Luke, it's, it's much, much harder to say your sins are forgiven. Because the reality is that sins have to be paid for. In verse 25, it says the man rose up. That is the same word that's used on Easter Sunday to describe what Jesus did. He rose up. You see, the only man, reason this man can rise up and the only reason that Jesus can forgive him or you or me is because Jesus died for our sins and He rose up. So what's harder? To forgive a paralyzed man or to forgive sins? Well, it's infinitely harder to forgive sins. It will cost Him His life. He will die for us to make that payment. And He offers you the grace that His death secured. If you will bow your knee to Him, the Bible says if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. May you do that for your eternal gain and for the glory of King Jesus. Our Father, we thank You so much for our Lord and the work that He has done. We thank You for the forgiveness that He offers. We love You, Jesus. Help us to rejoice in that forgiveness. Help us to find great delight in what You have done for us. I pray for my friend here this morning, Father, as we get ready to sing our closing song, a time of invitation, a time of meditation. Uh, perhaps there are some here, perhaps there is one here that ought not to sing, but ought to open their heart to you. Perhaps you're calling them even now, and that they might cry out to King Jesus, I believe. Forgive me. I surrender. I give my life to you. Father, will you not call the lost even now? We pray in Christ's name. Amen.